The Supreme Court began its new term this month. In this episode, we discuss the role of Chief Justice with Elizabeth Pepez, Supreme Court Historical Society trustee. There have been 17 Chief Justices in U.S. history, and Ms. Pepez talks about how they can, and have, influenced the court's direction. This episode first ran in 2019. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Elizabeth Pepez, we get to talk about the Supreme Court history for about an hour now, and I want to start uh, by understanding the court today. As the way the, our court is structured and how it's evolved, how does a chief justice in this era wield any authority? What tools do they have? Well, I think there's, you know, the answer to that question is in this era, as always, you know, the chief justice first and foremost is the head of and the steward of one of our three branches of government. I think there are some unique aspects about that job in the sense that the court is not a political branch. In fact, it was deliberately designed not to be. And the chief has, uh, in some respects, a uniquely difficult job because I'm sure you've heard this expression, the chief justice is a first among equals. So the chief has certain administrative and other responsibilities at the court, but he or she cannot actually control the other justices. And it's, it's often said sometimes that the chief justice has the power to cajole, but not control. And there are some great stories throughout history, I think, that illustrate that very well. So very specifically, does the chief have a role in what cases are heard? And then who writes the opinions? Of course, yes. So those are probably two of the principal uh, distinctions uh, of the chief justice. The the Chief Justice presides over the conference, which is the meeting of the justices, both on which cases to take uh, at the cert stage. And I think, as you probably know, it's a very small number uh, of cases that the court actually uh, takes and hears out of the number that are petitioned every year. I think it's certainly under 10%. And so the chief has a role in circulating what's called a discuss list. Other justices can add to it, but the chief circulates that list if a case doesn't make that list it's essentially presumptively denied. So that's an important role. The chief also pr presides over the conferences. And there's some great stories about this as well, in, insofar as you know, stating a view of a case and then going around the table in order of seniority to hear the other views. So certainly a role in managing the docket and what gets taken. And then the same process on the vote. And then you mentioned the opinion assignments, which is an extraordinarily important uh, job and is one that the chief uh, has when the chief is in the majority. If the majority of the court, uh, if the chief is not in the majority, it's the most senior justice. But then uh, again, we can talk about some stories about, you know, when a chief might join a majority in part to, you know, have maybe a hand in assigning an opinion and trying to keep consensus on the court. What, uh, in history, what number of justice is John Roberts, a chief justice, rather? You know, that's a great question. I'm not sure. Um, I know there have been about 102 or so justices. Mm -hmm. I think chiefs, I'm, I don't know, I'm tempted to say maybe somewhere between 10 and 15. I'm not exactly certain, but certain very few. Our first clip we have of him, we have a couple to show during this hour, is uh, him describing his job. It's a metaphor he uses often. Let's watch. Job doesn't give you a prominent role or historical significance just because you hold the job. You look at Melville Fuller and you understand his uh, uh, role in making sure the court uh, functioned collegially. You go in the next room and you see Charles Evans Hughes and you recall his vital role in turning back the court placking plan and you think about uh, the importance of the independence uh, uh, of the judiciary. Um, things like that. So he talks a lot about uh, how one makes history. He also often refers to himself as calling balls and strikes. That's what he sees his role. So how has this Chief Justice approached his tenure on the court? You know, I think um, Chief Justice Roberts is uh, sort of the consummate steward that you'd see as I was describing, you know, and I think he said this publicly. Uh, it goes all the way back to uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, who had this incredibly important role in establishing where the court's place is in our constitutional democracy. And I think it's, 
you know, candidly in answering your question, it's almost very hard to have a proper conversation about Chief Justices without spending a moment on uh, John Marshall. You probably know this story, but it's a great story. This was um, back in 1800. We had a situation where the Federalists were in the White House in Congress, but they lost the election. So John Adams is president. He's got two months before he has to cede control of both Congress and the White House to Thomas Jefferson and the Anti-Federalists. And he decides one thing he could do before he leaves the White House is put a number of judges on the bench. And he ends up choosing as Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, who's his Secretary of State at the time. I don't know how much people know this about John Marshall, but he was actually at the Constitutional Convention in Virginia in 1788 and spoke very much about what Chief Justice Roberts just said, the independence of the judiciary. And he said at that time, to what quarter do we look as a society for protection of rights and overreach in the political branches if not to the judiciary? So Adams appoints John Marshall as Chief Justice and tries to put some judges on the bench before he leaves and he runs out of time. And that leads to one of the most consequential cases, I think, in Supreme Court history. I'm, I'm sure you know a little bit about that story. Well, which was it? This is Marbury versus Madison. And the reason I raise it, Susan, is it's so, it's so very much what Chief Justice Roberts is talking about today. And you ask the question about how he approaches his job as Chief Justice and sees the role of the court. It was in that case that the court established its role in our constitutional democracy, and you've seen it across administrations all the way through history until the present moment. The court has this special role where it has to be independent of the political branches, so it can serve as a check, but it can't be seen as unaccountable or unresponsive to the people and the needs of the country. I think Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, understands that very well. And the way that Justice Marshall handled that in Marbury versus Madison was just extraordinary. He ended up on the Supreme Court where one of the judges that his president, President Adams, had actually appointed and was confirmed didn't get his commission from the new administration. And so the judge Marbury said, hey, you should, as the Supreme Court, order the Jefferson administration to give me my commission. And there's a provision in a federal statute that allows you, the Supreme Court, to do that. What John Marshall knew was that if he issued that order, he had no way to compel Jefferson and the administration to follow it. And so if he issued the order but it wasn't followed, that would weaken the court as an institution. What he did instead was said, yes, indeed, the commission should have issued, and yes, Marbury was right to bring a lawsuit and come to the Supreme Court. But the provision in the, in the law that he wants us as the Supreme Court to enforce, the one directing the executive branch to do something, is beyond our power as a court under the Constitution. So we can't do it. And what he did in one fell stroke there was say, we as the Supreme Court are here to interpret the Constitution even as against of legislation as an act of Congress, and we are the ones who say what the law is. And they did it, he did it in a moment where they were he was taking away the court's own power, so there was no backlash. But that is the case that I think every Chief Justice in the court itself looks to to say, that was the principle that wasn't established at the time, that is now the foundation of the court's role in our society. Well, in fact, the current Chief Justice does point to that. Let's return to clips and watch what he has to say about Marbury versus Madison. Many countries that have constitutions, they're really just political documents. And if you have a dispute under the Constitution, it's going to be resolved however disputes are going to be resolved. Maybe in an election if you're lucky, maybe by force of arms if you're not, maybe by the mob. However uh, political disputes are resolved, that's how they would resolve constitutional questions. John Marshall in, in Marbury versus Madison said this is different. Um, the Constitution is a political document. It sets up the political structures but it's also a law. And if it's a law, we have the courts to tell what it means, and that's binding on the other branches. And that important insight uh, into how the Constitution works has uh, been, I think, the secret to its success. You have more to say about that? It's funny that John Marshall was our fourth Chief Justice, but people always think of him as the first because of this ruling. Um, so uh, was it immediately known how significant it was, or did its significance play out over time? 
I, I would say the latter. I think the significance played out, out over time. I think the, the Chief Justice, uh, John Marshall, certainly knew the import of what he was doing. But again, it was the deafness of it was in the moment where he was doing it in a way that wouldn't cause rancor. And you see, and we can talk about how, you know, uh, one of the key roles of a chief justice is to manage exactly that, to preserve the court's role, but do it deftly in a way that, that you know, preserves the, the court's place in the constitutional structure and doesn't provoke. And it's very funny, your first clip from Chief Justice Roberts mentioned Chief Justice Hughes and FDR's uh, court packing scheme. And this was another moment where, to your point, I think we really saw the import of the Marbury versus Madison decision come into play. And again, it's another great story in history, right? I, I mean, to yeah. get to it in a little bit, because let me work my way through history a little bit more. Uh, one other thing before we leave this case, I understand that the court under uh, Marshall also established the tradition of speaking with one voice with their opinions. Uh, before that, there had been as many chief justices, there were different opinions. What, was the, what has been the significance of speaking with one voice for the court? I think it goes to the credibility of the institution, frankly, and the whole notion that we've been talking about and Chief Justice Roberts has you know, highlighted, which is the court is not political. And you see this in the parlance of the court. You know, the court will say, we serve the constitution, not constituents. And we conference, we do not caucus. There's no aisle. We're all here to do the work of the court. And that was certainly, you know, I had the privilege of spending a year there as a law clerk. You know, it was my impression, I think certainly Chief Justice Roberts has said publicly that, you know, the court is misperceived when people talk in partisan terms. It's, its work is different in kind. Well, before we go into history, let's spend just a little bit more on you so people know who that they're listening to. Um, first of all, you're a trustee of the U.S. Supreme Court Historical Society. What is that organization? You know, the Historical Society is a fantastic organization. It does a lot of great work, uh, you know, preserving a lot of the history that we're talking about here today, and also just increasing, I think, public understanding of the Supreme Court as an institution, because it's not an institution you hear about as much or you might be as familiar with as, say, you know, the, a president or even, you know, the, the, uh, the Congress. So it, it's a terrific organization, and some of the historical materials, if you go visit the website, you can see, you know, it's, it's, it's videos, it's audio clips, it's papers, you know, understanding the, the role of the court in some of the most consequential decisions of our time that people talk about every year, and especially in election years, and so it's just a terrific organization. And you are a lawyer. What kind of law do you practice? You know, I practice mostly civil law, but I have done constitutional uh, work, I do, and um, I had the privilege also of serving in the executive branch at the Justice Department, uh, as well as as a law clerk in the court, and I've never worked on Capitol Hill, but I certainly was uh, able to work with members and staff when I was in the Justice Department. I've testified there several times, so really, I mean, it's a testament to our great country that I'm even sitting here with you. I'm first generation American. I have lived and been lucky enough to live some of the things I was reading about in school as I was growing up. And so that's, uh, it's been a great perspective. Where did you go to law school? I went to law school at Harvard. And how did you first get interested in law? You know, it's an interesting question. I've always loved history. And there's such an intersection between law and history. And um, I think, you know, it was just kind of a natural consequence. I can't say I'm one of these people who woke up and knew when I was 10 years old that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, you know, I was in college. Part of it was, you know, I was looking for a good job. And uh, I had studied some science and thought maybe about going to a medical school or a PhD, but law school was shorter and I could get out into the work world sooner, and so I chose that. And a lot of it is just relationships. You know, you meet some extraordinary people along the way. Uh, Justice Thomas, the justice I, I clerked for on the Supreme Court, was one of them. But many people in the course of my career have sort of encouraged me as a lawyer not, not to be a lawyer, just because what they contribute to society has moved me. What does it mean when you're a clerk at the Supreme Court? What do you do? You know, a lot of it is work, obviously, on the opinions and on the petitions that come to the court, and you assist uh, your justice and the court as a whole in managing the caseload. It is a tremendous privilege. Um, you know, one of the parts of the privilege of that job is that we typically don't, you know, talk too much about what happens uh, in the court process because there are rules around that, but really it's about being uh, a support to the court because the amount of work is tremendous. Uh, the volume of petitions that come in are thousands. And then for each case, you know, managing 
the research, the opinion drafting, uh, making sure that the conference and the vote, you know, is reflected in the opinions and getting them out to the public, you know, in a timely way is a tremendous amount of work. And so, you know, the justices all do their work, obviously, in, in the votes and in the writing. But, you know, the law clerks are there to, you know, pick up the oar <laughs> in, getting the, in, getting, in getting the opinions out. What year did you clerk for Justice Thomas? This was in 2009. How many clerks does a justice usually have? Typically four. We have a clip we found in our library from back in 2016. Uh, apparently, Justice Thomas has a tradition of taking his clerks to Gettysburg every year, and he was asked in an interview why he did that. Here's a little bit of his explanation. Let's watch. In these jobs, a lot of negativity comes in, but you've got to, I mean, that's a lesson, I, again, as I mentioned, I learned from General Meese, that you somehow, you keep it together and you present the, you say, look, I know I'm experienced, I've seen how the sausage is made, but this ideal, that's all we have left, is this wonderful ideal of, of what the perfectibility of this great republic. And so that's basically the reason. I mean, and plus it's kind of fun. I mean, we... <laughs> well, and, and, and you can contemplate, I suppose, about how our country would have gone in a completely different direction. Well, yeah, if we'd lost. I mean, if Lee had won, that'd have been a problem. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, it'd have been yes, more of a problem would. for me than you. So we see a bit of his sense of humor there, but he's talking about how people that watch the sausage being made so closely can get a bit jaded about it and how it's important to think about the country's ideals. Um, what did you learn by being inside the court uh, that you had never realized before by studying about it? It's an extraordinary institution, you know. The, the cases are difficult and they can be controversial and I think the, there's no way to report on them without you know, taking a top line in some respects. But I do think what you experience, and certainly that I experienced as a law clerk, is exactly what the Chief Justice and Justice Thomas were talking about, which is regardless of views or votes on a particular case, all of the justices, and in my experience, every law clerk in the building is there to further the work of the court in our constitutional democracy and going to places like Gettysburg or walking the halls of that building, you see and feel the history and you realize you are a very, very small part in a moment of a great institution that has survived tremendous things. And you know, there's some great stories and some great drama we can talk about, but it has always survived. It's protected our country. And I think, you know, what I, what I remember seeing in that building was everybody working hard to further the court's role and there was a civility and a collegiality where you could have the most, you know, ardent disagreement intellectually, but everybody knew that we were there to do the good work of the court. And I still, to this day, I was at a dinner recently, you know, the, there was a law clerk at 100, 100 years worth of Supreme Court law clerks. We had people going back, I think, to, you know, maybe the 1950s in the, at the dinner. And there is a sense of, you know, you were part of something bigger, and you were, and, and you, you had these are friends and peers. I think you, you'll remember for your life. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com/system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, we're going to return to history. And you talk about the court uh, uh, and, and years of particular uh, strife and trauma. One of those was during the Roosevelt administration when a very frustrated Roosevelt uh, decided he was going to expand the size of the court. What, what are the interesting stories from the era of attempted court packing? I mean, there are so many, but I'll focus obviously on the on the role of the Chief Justice since we're talking about that here today. But this is, you know, obviously the country, uh, you know, in the Great Depression, a lot of people were suffering. So, you know, FDR in the first in his first term brought a lot of relief with the New Deal programs. You know, was elected, you know, in a landslide for his second term. The court, though, to the point we've been talking about, you know, some of those programs came up for judicial review. And most of them passed muster, a few did not. You know, the few that did not were typically ones where the administration was trying to regulate the domestic economy, either in a way that, you know, kind of infringed on the roles of the states, obviously, because in our democracy there is 
a vertical component, I'll call it. There's the horizontal Congress, the courts, and the president, the executive branch. And then there are the states as sovereigns. And so there were two big cases that frustrated FDR, as you said, where the court had declared that things that the administration wanted to do with a cooperative Congress were unconstitutional. And that did frustrate the president, particularly because he had such a popular majority behind him. So the swearing in, obviously one of the, the functions of a chief justice uh, is to inaugurate the new president. And you know this happened. You know it was funny. The Marbury versus Madison. You know it was Chief Justice Marshall inaugurating Thomas Jefferson on the you know before this court case came that pitted them against one another. Same thing for FDR. That you know he wins the second term, and he's being sworn in by then Chief Justice Hughes, who's presided over the court decisions that have struck some of the New Deal programs. And so the swearing in, you know, the historical account is very funny. It was a windy day. Chief Justice Hughes wore whiskers that were flapping in the wind. Obviously, the Chief Justice had a view that the executive branch was maybe going a little bit far with some of the programs. So he read the oath, Chief Justice Hughes read the oath very seriously and solemnly. And it was not lost on the president. FDR responded after, I understand that you're saying my oath is to uphold the Constitution, but it's the Constitution as I see it, and a flexible one, to adopt to the challenges of the democracy as I view them as a president. So this sort of set up a, a little bit of a contrast between the, you know, the, the court and the executive branch, and what FDR did right after that was, unbeknownst to most members of the court, he invites them all to dinner at his house. Everything goes swimmingly. Unbeknownst to most members of the court who were at the dinner party, three days later, this is February of, I think, uh, maybe 37, I can't remember, uh, he announces the court packing plan. And his plan is for every justice on the court who is age 70 or, or older, the president can appoint, if that justice does not retire, the president can appoint a new justice up to an additional six. At that time, that would have allowed FDR to put up to 15 justices on the court and ensure his New Deal legislation would not be struck as it was during his first term. Chief Justice Hughes handled this, I think, in a way that is extraordinary and may explain Chief Justice Roberts' reference in the clip we saw. He was apolitical. He was asked by members of Congress. He was lobbied by people to speak out against this plan. He refused to do so. Eventually, after much back and forth, he ended up writing a letter that it was widely understood to say, I don't agree that there's any need to change the number of justices on the court and the president's reason, which was purportedly that the older justices could not keep up with the caseload, was pretext and unjustified. I have to laugh a little now, because I mean, if, if you think back on this time, I mean, if, if you know, FDR had uh, maybe met you know, Justice Ginsburg, he may not have been able to put that narrative out there at all. But it was very successful in Chief Justice Hughes saying, I'm not gonna be political. I will issue this letter saying, this is pretext, it's not right. Congress didn't pass the law. There are different historical explanations of why the court packing plan ultimately didn't succeed beyond the Chief Justice's approach. But it sort of exemplified, I think, the point that we don't want the Supreme Court embroiled in politics and that it has to have sort of a deft hand in managing these situations. And it's worth noting for our audience that Charles Evans Hughes himself had earlier been a candidate for the presidency, unsuccessful, right. of course, but he had his very own views of presidential power and how it should be wielded that he brought to this conversation. That and also on the court itself, I will <laughs> say, you know, you've probably heard the expression, you know, the switch in time saves nine. You know, Chief Justice Hughes, I think, was deft not only in not being drawn into the fray on the court packing plan, but also after Congress voted down the legislation. You know, he managed the conference, one justice at the time, you know, sort of started voting a little bit more uh, hospitably, I think, towards uh, FDR's legislation. And then another justice, uh, Van Devanter, retired. And that opened up a spot for FDR to appoint a new justice uh, who he could, you know, hope was going to be consistent with his program. That was Hugo Black. And that was a whole other era of havoc at the court. <laughs> there is no constitutional mandate, of course, for the size of the court. Correct. So this was truly, I will say, this the deafness I was I was referencing, and it's it's kind of hard to, you know, to convey sometimes. But it's there's a, a structural component, right, to the court's place in our democracy. You know, it's on co-equal footing with the other branches, but it does a different job. And so there's no constitutional, you know, restriction or prescription on the number of justices. I think looking back, and certainly the chief justice saw the court packing plan 
as a way of the executive overstepping its bounds and unseating the constitutional balance by allowing a president to pack the court. And you know, whoever favored it at the time, if you were an FDR fan, you may have had no problem with it, but you have to think, if that's allowed, what happens when the president's doing that who you're not so excited about, right? Do we want this to be for our democracy? So our next Chief Justice we're gonna talk about is was appointed by Roosevelt's successor, Harry Truman. <clears throat> Chief Justice Fred Vinson. We've got some video uh, of a, it's a newsreel of the era that shows when he was sworn in. Let's watch. Before the south portico of the White House, a large crowd witnesses the impressive ceremonies in which Justice Groner of the Court of Appeals swears in Fred M. Vinson as the 13th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The former Secretary of the Treasury is congratulated by members of his proud family. On his shoulders rests the immediate task of bringing harmony to the nation's highest tribunal. So, uh, really interesting to see the kinds of crowds that were attracted to watch the swearing in of a Chief Justice. Uh, what was America like in a post-war era uh, that this court wa was going to be a part of? Well, you know, it's very interesting you asked that, and you heard the, the quote in the clip that part of the idea behind Vincent's appointment was to bring unity to the court. I think to understand that, you have to understand what, what immediately preceded Vincent, which was Chief Justice Stone. And it, it, this is a very funny segue, because we just talked a little bit about the court packing FDR, the New Deal, and Chief Justice Hughes. When Van Devanter retires and FDR gets a new court pick, it's Hugo Black. And Hugo Black had notorious feuds with several members of the court that Chief Justice Vinson, in the clip we just saw, was you know, appointed to try to unify. Very tough job. Uh, Chief Justice Stone is the Chief Justice who immediately preceded Vinson. And Hugo Black, Robert Jackson, you know, significant jurisprudence, big part in Brown v. Board, which we can talk about. They had a notorious feud because Hugo Black had previously been in the Senate. There were some cases leading up to Vincent's appointment. Um, one was uh, about uh, Fair Labor Standards Act issues, which basically Hugo Black, before he was on the Supreme Court, had taken a position on in the U.S. Senate. And Jackson felt like he was conflicted, Black was conflicted in some of the rulings, and they had this notorious feud. Chief Justice Stone was unable to make peace and control what ended up being a very public airing of some divisions on the court. So Chief Justice Vincent in the, Chief Justice Stone died. Uh, Justice Jackson was very frustrated with Chief Justice Stone's sort of inability to manage the court, and particularly to manage Black. So Justice Jackson had gone off to do the Nuremberg trials. Very strange thing, because he was still an active member of the Supreme Court, but he wasn't sitting. So you had an eight-member court, no tiebreaker. The chief was also frustrated by that, but unable to do anything. So Truman's idea was, appoint Vinson, and let's see if he can bring some order to this. And sadly, he was unable to do so. He inherited this fractured court. And rather than getting better, I have to tell you, I think all the historical current counts are, it got demonstrably worse. I don't know if it makes sense to talk a little bit about that and then maybe some of the cases. Sure, uh, did he have a judicial philosophy that he brought to the court that he's known for? I don't know that he has a judicial philosophy the way, you know, people think of some chief justices today. I think, you know, he was, close to, to the president, I think it was difficult for him because some regarded him as a, as, as a crony, as it were. Felix Frankfurter was on the court, Harvard professor. You know, the accounts are that, that they you know, at least Chief Justice Vincent felt like Frankfurter had some disdain for him. And I will tell you, you know, Vincent was the presiding chief justice when Brown versus Board of Education came up for the first argument before the Supreme Court. And the historical accounts, and you can see them on the society's website, are that the court at that time had open contempt for the chief. And the reason I mention this is, you know, a chief's ability to manage the court as a first among equals, because he can't actually control what they do, so it's the cajole, not control, has tremendous consequences for that first round of Brown. The case was argued Vincent, and this is out in, in the record, was in conference. He had one justice who would have upheld the segregation at issue in Brown. 
he couldn't get a clear majority for the rest of the conference and was basically paralyzed. His inability to handle that led, you know, people talk about Vincent sort of pushing out the timeline and having the case come up for re-argument and buying the court some time to figure out what it was going to do. Uh, the accounts are actually that it was Felix Frankfurter who came up with the idea that they should have five questions to be re-argued and buy some time for the court to sort out its position. And what happened after that is actually Chief Justice Vinson died before the re-argument. The historical accounts are, you know, this is a rather unflattering thing, but it's reported that Frankfurter said that's my first sign ever that there is a God that uh, Chief Justice Vinson passed. And Justice, Chief Justice Earl Warren was appointed, and it was a very different approach to Brown after that. There's a major <clears throat> private notes project going on, as you well know about, where uh, the notes that the justices take in these private conferences are beginning to be digitized and made available. Uh, I saw in a story about that that in December of 1952, when this case, which was then called Briggs versus Elliott, was being heard, uh, and the conference notes show the split that four justices were, were ready to find segregation unconstitutional, and one Stanley Reed. Uh, voted to uphold it. And Chief Justice Fred Vinson's notes say from that day, I'm not sure what we should do today. So he he couldn't find a way out of that. Ultimately, they, they felt it was important for Brown, uh, heard by the next court, to be unanimous. What's the, what's the strength? I mean, it seems obvious, but why could they not let it go as a split decision? Why was it important for Brown to be a unanimous decision? Yeah, I mean, I'll comment on the digitization product project in a moment because I think that's it's it's a significant one. But to the point, uh, the unanimity uh, was the idea. Chief Justice Earl Warren, who was appointed to replace Vincent, the idea was really try to bring some unanimity to the court on decisions like Brown. And his thought, you know, he was governor of California. He was, uh, again, very deft at looking at the conference and looking at the country and saying, if we do this. It's got to be unanimous, and there were two reasons for that. One is it was a, a fairly divisive uh, issue, even at the time. And then secondly, they were overruling a major precedent. As you've probably known, have heard, you know, the Supreme Court is not a political body, so it can't just change its mind or overrule its own decisions on a whim or because of political sentiment in the country. There has to be a reason. And Chief Justice Earl Warren was, I think, extremely sensitized to the fact that if they overruled the segregation that was before the court in Brown, they would be overruling the court's 60-year-old decision in Plessy versus Ferguson that said, under the Reconstruction Civil Rights Amendments, equality is fulfilled by having separate but equal facilities. And so Chief Justice Earl Warren understood that you had to get to a unanimous opinion. And more than that, and we can talk about how he did that, which again is, is I think, an important role of the Chief Justice in getting consensus on a court that was still split getting it short enough so the papers could publish it, so that people could see the work of the court as one, everyone could read it, and then there came how to administer that, which we know from the civil rights era was very difficult, but that was a follow-on chapter, and Chief Justice Warren knew how to... Which Chief Justice Vinson couldn't get done. Could not get done. One of the other big cases that we dealt with in our landmark cases series during the Vinson years was Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer. Uh, why is this a landmark case? What was significant about it? And uh, how did the Chief Justice Vinson approach this case? Yeah, this was the steel seizure case. Um, the Chief Justice, I think, again, it was a function of, you know, maybe not fully understanding uh, the views of the other justices in his conference. In fact, in that case, it was one where obviously the executive branch wanted to seize uh, you know, steel production factories in the, in the country, wartime justification. And the question was, does the executive branch have the power to do that? It infringes on commerce and states' rights and the like. And Vincent thought, and, and, and a historical account say he actually assured the president that the court would approve it. And he didn't know his own conference well enough to know that they, in fact, would not. They reversed there. And it was significant, I think, because one of the court's major roles, and it's a very delicate one, as you can imagine, starting back with Marbury, is acting as you know, the final word on when the Constitution draws a line on another branch of government. And so the, the steel seizure case, like some others that we've seen and can talk about, are about the court saying when another branch has gone too far. In that case, it was the executive branch. So I want to stop one part of the story that just caught my ear, which is 
that the uh, Chief Justice assured the President that this would not be overturned. So uh, how much do we know from history about conversations between chiefs, especially when they are of the same party, actually signaling to the President which direction a major case that they care about might go? I is think it it's rare or is it common? My sense is it's rare, you know, but it's hard to know. I mean, this is where, frankly, you know, some of the projects like the digitization project that you mentioned, you know, can be illuminating, you know, because you can get contemporaneous notes or, you know, from the other justices. By the way, I should say, I mean, the, the notes of the justices, typically the conferences are not public, they're closed, but the notes are the personal property of the justice. So they can obviously decide to leave their public papers with the Library of Congress or, you know, in, uh, an institute. So it is illuminating. My sense is it's not common. You know, that was also one of the reasons, frankly, that I think undermined Chief Justice Vinson's credibility with the court. You know, I mentioned the cronyism point. You know, there was some criticism that he was too close to the president, you know, and that that's not the job of the court. That's not the job of the Chief Justice. You know, it, it's not, you're not partisan, you're not a crony, you're there to do a particular job. And there was some criticism. I think that damaged maybe his credibility with the conference. So we segued into Earl Warren, who was successful in a unanimous decision on Brown versus Board of Education, another landmark case. Uh, but let's talk more broadly about the, the Warren court. It was a long one, 1953 through 1969. Mm -hmm. Now, Eisenhower appointed him. Uh, did President Eisenhower get what he expected philosophically from Earl Warren? He was a law and order governor, um, so when he appointed him, what was he hoping his view might be on some of the big issues of society at the time? I mean, I think it's hard to say what the president had in mind, or even if, if he had a particular view in mind. I think one thing he, the president said publicly in appointing uh, Chief Justice Warren that he certainly got was someone who could bring unanimity and some consensus to the court. But the court is thought of now as a much more liberal court. We had a Republican president yeah. appointing him. So philosophically, were Republicans surprised at how the Warren Court turned out? Perhaps in some respects. I mean, you know, the, the party alignments on a partisan level, I think, are different than they are today. So I think in, in some respects, the you know, Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, you know, it wasn't uh, a great surprise that the, the Chief Justice Warren and the Warren Court would be as active and supportive as it was of civil rights, which was in line, you know, with the, the party of Lincoln and the idea that there should be some equality. Um, so I think in that respect, maybe not so much of a surprise. But again, you know, the issue is, the question you raises, I think, highlights a really important point about the relationship between an appointing president and the court, right? Which is once once the justices get on the court, this is the balls and strikes. You get these cases, you got to call them as you see them. You know, Justice Thomas has said that. You heard the chief say that. And I think that's why, you know, whatever a president's expectations on some level, uh, you know, if you see some diversions, that, that's probably a good thing because that means that the justices are doing their job. So during the Warren years, besides Brown, there are just a number of landmark yeah. cases. Um, in categories, in voting and redistricting, Baker versus Carr, right. Reynolds versus Sims, we dealt with a number of the criminal procedure landmark cases, Mapp versus Ohio, Miranda, which gave us Miranda rights, Gideon versus Rainwright, and Katz versus United States. Mm -hmm. Why don't we uh, talk about criminal procedure since he was attorney general and uh, law and order governor. Mm -hmm. Those landmark cases in the area of criminal procedure, how did that change the country? What, were they, what did they do? Well, I mean, I think they, you know, they changed the country probably in innumerable ways. But I think going back to the foundation of what the Constitution talks about, it goes back to the basic notion of due process. And you know, a law and order government go governor, it's not necessarily surprising to say, well, look, the only way that law and order maintains its credibility, and you know, even as a prosecutor, if if your prosecutions hold, is if they're done fairly. And if the criminal defendant has rights that our Constitution contemplates. And so I think what we saw during the Warren Court was a build out of, you know, this just basic fundamental constitutional concept of due process. And so that wasn't as surprising. And I will tell you, it's a great example, and I'm glad you raised it, about how the court, I, I think, is sometimes misperceived as having jurisprudence that's on a partisan basis. When you look at, for example, Justice Thomas's Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, a number of his decisions are very pro-defendant in exactly the way that many of the Warren Court decisions you mentioned are, in the sense that they ensure that a defendant has certain rights as against the government, as, as against law enforcement. And, you know, you look at someone like Justice Thomas, who I think is, is perceived, you know, if you look at media accounts as, as a conservative justice on the so-called right of the court, who has many cases 
that are pro-criminal defendant because they, they derive from the same constitutional principles as, as some of the Warren Court jurisprudence. Under free speech, the famous New York Times versus Sullivan, Bradenburg versus Ohio, mm -hmm. uh, and the student free speech, Tinker versus the Des Moines yeah. School District. In the area of free speech, what is the Warren Court known for? I mean, very significant, I think, you know, in terms of of galvanizing free speech rights, I think particularly in the school context. I think the Engel case, the you know, no school prayer case was also uh, during the Warren Court. So I think very much a proponent of the First Amendment. Um, but you know, I think again, that was not necessarily as surprising. And when you look past the Warren Court, for example, to the next Chief Justice, Chief Justice Berger, who Nixon campaigned, you know, to sort of on the idea of being someone who would rein in the Warren Court. If you look in the area of First Amendment jurisprudence, you still have some significant opinions like uh, the, the case, I can't remember the name at the moment, but the one that the, I think it was the Berger Court upheld saying you cannot compel uh, the media or a newspaper to print the response of a political candidate whose position the paper attacked because that is compelled speech. You know, the, the Burger Court also held that, you know, the right of free speech in the First Amendment can encompass the right not to speak. So I think, you know, it's, some of those decisions from the Warren Court weren't perhaps as, um, you know, extraordinary or, or aligned with, with one, you know, political philosophy or another than it was with some, some constitutional first principles. Another case they decided during the Warren years, which we hear so much about today, is Griswold. Mm -hmm. uh, what was Griswold? The Griswold is, you know, one of the cases, Griswold versus Connecticut, that kind of, I, I think, is one of the foundations, or at least widely regarded as one of the foundations of the privacy rights uh, in, in, in the, you know, 14th Amendment, the constitutional due process that has led to a lot of the cases um, Roe versus Wade, you know, Planned Parenthood versus Casey that talk about a, a right of a privacy that adheres in the Constitution that the court has built out. I think that's probably one of the areas that is more a controversial part of the Warren Court's jurisprudence and certainly now uh, in the Burger Court, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist Court and the current court. You know, I think people are looking, uh, and the court is looking uh, carefully at some of those precedents. It's interesting to me, though, because when you look at those that line of of cases and some of the examination that's going on now, I think as a matter of process, it's not fundamentally different from the kind of reexamination and thoughtfulness that the court engaged when it was considering Brown as against years of precedent under Plessy. So I think, you know, people sometimes focus more on result than process. What strikes me about both instances is the court is doing its job of being faithful to the Constitution, not legislating or overstepping its role, but also, you know, re-examining where necessary uh, some of the jurisprudence as time, as time proceeds. We have another clip to show, and this is from a 1969 interview that uh, Earl Warren gave just before he was retiring, talking about uh, one of the most important cases he saw during his term. I just wanted people to see and, uh, and hear what he looked and sounded like. Let's watch. We held that the legislatures uh, must give equal representation to everyone. That was where the expression, one man, one vote, came into, uh, into being. And of course, it isn't just state legislatures, but it's been been uh, uh, expanded to the Congress and expanded also to local government. And uh, if it's right on one level of government, of course, it's uh, it's right on all levels of government. And uh, in that sense, I, I think that uh, that that case, from which all the other reinforcement cases followed, is perhaps the most important case that we've had since I've been on the court. Casey was talking about was Baker versus Carr. One person, one vote. Why does he see that as, we just listed a lot of important cases. Why would he see this as the most significant during his term? You know, again, it's hard to say. I mean, I can't purport to speak for the Chief Justice, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I think it is significant in terms of um, the point he was making about there's a fundamental notion of equality. What does it mean? And then how is it enforced in a, or, or safeguarded in a political democracy if you don't have that sort of representation? You know, I think it raises questions about the respective roles of government. I think the court's role is very much to safeguard, you know, that sort of individual right so that it can be exercised in electing responsive members in the political branches. So I think that's a, a pretty fundamental uh, part of our jurisprudence. And if the court weren't to protect that, 
then sort of the foundation of the democracy starts to erode. So you uh, s told us that Warren Burger uh, was re was appointed by Richard Nixon when Chief Justice Earl Warren retired. Uh, we, when you you've referenced other uh, chief justices from history and their administrative skills. What is the view of the way that Warren Burger administered the court during his term? You know, it's interesting, again, he was probably, at least initially or in the historical accounts aligned a little bit more with sort of the Stone Vincent era in the sense that he came onto the court after, you know, Chief Justice Earl Warren was again a superb chief. Um, when Burger came on, he had some difficulty, he was not, well liked or respected by some of the justices, I think notoriously Justice Douglas, um, who was concerned that, to the point we discussed earlier, uh, Chief Justice Berger would kind of be there to carry out the president's mandate of walking back some of the Warren Court era jurisprudence in a way that was, you know, sort of more political or agenda driven than, you know, perhaps should be the the, the role of a chief justice. Um, you know, how, how much of that perspective was driven by, you know, sort of the, the, the those dissenting justices or, or objecting justices' own, you know, agendas is hard to say, right? I mean, one could make the argument both ways, but he definitely, Chief Justice Berger had a harder time. And, you know, you saw this in some of the cases where, I mean, I, I thought, I think it was Roe on the first argument round where th that case was re-argued again, just like uh, Brown was, right? So there's some cases where the court re-argues and buys some time, but when Chief Justice Berger did that, I think it was Justice Douglas who leaked a dissent and, you know, tried to sort of publicize a little bit some of the divisions on the court and make the, the chief's job a little bit harder. So I think the answer to your question is he faced certainly a more uphill environment than perhaps Warren did. And, and if he didn't, you know, perhaps Warren was just better at, at organizing it. I will tell you on Brown versus Board, you know the story. I mean, Justice Jackson was um, a, a big proponent of judicial restraint and was very concerned about you know, the court overruling precedents and how to get to the result in uh, Brown that, that Justice Jackson agreed with, but was worried about who should do it and what the court's role was. And Chief Justice Warren went, Justice Jackson had a heart attack while that case was pending before the court, went to his bedside with a draft opinion to get to the unanimity we were talking about and tried to get buy-in, including also from the dissenting justice you mentioned who was going to uh, vote for segregation. He got the unanimous court in the room to announce that opinion. Berger had a harder time building that kind of consensus. He had some big cases during this term. You mentioned uh, Huge. the New York Times versus the United States mm -hmm. on freedom of the press, Roe v. Wade, uh, Greg v. Georgia, which is the death penalty case, yep. uh, Regents of uh, University of California versus Bakke, which is affirmative action, which we continue to see cases uh, referring to that decision, and then United States versus Nixon. Here's another one that you might talk about, which pits the branches of government against each other. Right. Uh, what was the, uh, why was that case so important? Well, I mean, you know, that was obviously the executive privilege case, right, in the Nixon administration, and the whole question before the court was, you know, is there a constitutional foundation for the executive or the president's assertion of privilege over presidential papers and communications. So this was again going back to Marbury or the you know New Deal era, uh, the court's consequential role in saying what the law is and then mediating this you know kind of structural separation of powers game where it's like who gets to do what in our government. What was so significant about that case was the court came in and said yes we're going to uphold the privilege because the privilege, whether you like how it's being exercised in, in this instance or not, exists to protect the role of the executive branch. This goes to the deliberative thing. It's, there's a deliberative process. We want our elected representatives to have you know, debate and to have deliberations in government. And there's a pre presidential prerogative as an executive to make certain decisions and not, to not have those second guests or Monday morning quarterbacked. And I think the court saw that and said, this privilege is, has a constitutional underpinning, and so we're going to uphold it. It was a very significant decision. So another appointee of Richard Nixon was William Rehnquist, mm. appointed to the court in 1972. When Ronald Reagan was president, he elevated William Rehnquist to chief justice in 1986. Can you talk about Rehnquist's judicial philosophy? What, what was his view of the role of the Constitution, for example? Because the great tension is uh, the originalist versus the living document. So where would William Rehnquist have been on that? I mean, I think 
you know, probably if you were to categorize him, and I'm not sure it's, it's possible quite to do so simply, probably more on the originalist side, although when I think of the Rehnquist Court jurisprudence, what stands out to me, in contrast to some of the justices and chief justices we've been talking about is, you mentioned like, you know, the Nixon case, that was all the, what I'll call the horizontal component of our government, which is Congress, you know, the president and, and the court. Rehnquist jurisprudence focused very much on what I'll call the vertical component, which is the relationship between the federal government and the states. Which was very much Ronald Reagan's uh, federalism much. issues. Exactly. So the federalism, I think the Rehnquist court, you know, embraced, really re-embraced the idea that, and this, this harkens back and it has echoes, right, of, of Chief Justice Hughes reacting to the New, New Deal legislation. There are certain prerogatives that the federal government and the political branches have, but it's for the court to say when they go too far, whether in infringing, you know, a coordinate branch of the federal government or in infringing the states or individual rights. And so I think what we saw during Chief Justice Rehnquist's tenure was kind of a, a refocusing of the court's attention on the relationship between the federal government and the states. That being said, Will he not always be known for two decisions that really were the, the balance of powers? That is, of course, the impeachment trial of President Clinton in 1999, and then Bush v. Gore in 2000. Sure. I mean, it's funny, though, you know, he said this about presiding over the impeachment trial, which is obviously one of the, you know, sig significant duties of a chief justice that, that other justices do not share. But I think, you know, he was a big Gilbert and Sullivan fan. And I think, you know, when, when asked what he did or how he perceived his role uh, presiding at the Senate trial, uh, he said, you know, I, I did nothing in particular and I did it very well. Um, you know, so I think he he didn't relish the role. I will say what, you know, to the point we've been talking about all morning, which is this issue of where does the court's work and role fall in the government, Chief Justice Rehnquist did comment coming out of the uh, impeachment proceedings on, you know, what he termed sort of, you know, tongue in cheek, the relative order of the Supreme Court as against the free form uh, environment in the Senate and that he was happy to go back to the court. So, Well, let me stay with that in a minute because that's all this town is thinking about right now. I found a USA Today story from uh, October of this year. Just a little historical note that the late Chief Justice William Rehnquist was a busy man on January 20th, 1999. The impeachment trial of Bill Clinton was in its second week, and Rehnquist had to stop presiding over oral arguments to move to the Senate to preside over the trial. And it's, it goes on to note one of the lawyers arguing before the high court that day was John Roberts. Now, here we are as history moves forward. John Roberts might be the third chief justice in American history to preside over an impeachment trial. Uh, Mitch McConnell has already uh, led the Senate, at least his caucus, through uh, a process orientation about what their role might be if, in fact, uh, the current situation leads to an impeachment trial in the Senate. Has anything come out of the Supreme Court about preparations for what the chief justice or the court's role might be? Not that I know of, which doesn't surprise me. And I think, you know, Chief Justice Rehnquist, going back to your point coming out of the 1999 proceedings, was, you know, uh, I think made a point of saying he actually consulted or had with him a, a congressional parliamentarian and that he, you know, saw his role. I mean, it's an Article One. it's a constitutionally prescribed role that the Chief Justice of the United States preside uh, over the Senate in any impeachment trial. Um, you know, but I think, I don't know that anything about that role has changed insofar as, you know, if the question is more, you know, are, is there something going on where in anticipation of such a trial and having maybe, um, you know, the Chief Justice otherwise occupied that they have altered the schedule, uh, certainly not, not to my knowledge, but that's all obviously something that would be uh, internal to the court, although I, I, I might be surprised. There's only two times before that this has happened. So would it, uh, are there records available to know uh, how the Chief Justice's role shapes up during this? I mean, the last one was Andrew Johnson, and it was a very different Congress and a very different country at the time. There may be. That may be something that would be worth a, a visit to the Historical, Historical Society's Society. website, Absolutely. yes. But, um, you know, certainly, I mean, the, you know, the Chief Justice remains the Chief Justice, and, the, you know, they vote, and there are people there to do the work of the cases. So. Um, I would imagine the work of the court will carry on. Well, let's bring it back to the, the current court. We have about five minutes left in our conversation. So uh, when, you, when one looks at, we've been looking at chief justices and the role that they've taken. Uh, with that in mind, uh, Justice Roberts is on going into his 15th year presiding over this court. What are the broad observations that one might look at, casting an eye towards history, about the Roberts court and how he's approached it? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, um, and this this goes back to, I think, a point that you raised at the beginning and is evident in the clips that you showed, 
uh, us at, this, at the start of the hour, I think one of the big points is the Chief Justice has been very cognizant of and, and done a tremendous job of being a steward of the court as an institution and balancing the importance of maintaining public confidence and access to the court uh, with its role, meaning a nonpartisan, nonpolitical role. And, and by that I mean, and it goes to, for example, the, the digitization product project you mentioned, you know, transparency and access are very important. But at the Supreme Court, and I think the Chief Justice has said this publicly, the discourse inside the court you know, needs to maintain its integrity. There's something to be said for preserving that. Uh, you saw this last month in the Wisconsin gerrymandering case. There, were, there was a bipartisan request out of Congress to have live streaming of those oral arguments. And the Chief Justice's counsel, uh, Jeff Minear, wrote a letter to the bar bipartisan coalition and said, you know, we, we can't accommodate that request because the court is concerned that that may alter or adversely affect the nature and quality of the discourse on the case. But I think what the Chief Justice Roberts has done, you know, in, in counterpoint to maintaining the line on things like that, is gone out of his way to make public access available in other ways, like the, you know, audio is now available, I think, same day, uh, transcripts of oral arguments by the end of the week, you know, publishing the opinions quickly. Chief Justice Berger had the same thing, but I think in terms of, you know, he, he revolutionized the court in terms of public access to the building and, you know, some things that help people understand what the court's role is and preserve some transparency while ensuring that the court's work still has the nature and character necessary to do its job. And I think that's going to be, looking back, a big part of the legacy or certainly a notable one. Well, we have one last clip of the Chief Justice. Uh, this is from 2018, University of Minnesota Law School, where he uh, really hits on the themes you just discussed. Mm. Let's watch. Now the court has, from time to time, erred, and erred greatly. But when it has, it has been because the court yielded to political pressure. We need to know at each step that we are in this together. There is a concrete expression of that collegiality in a tradition at the court that has prevailed for over a century. Before we go onto the bench to hear argument in a case, and before we go into the conference room to discuss a case, we pause for a moment and shake each other's hand. It's a small thing, perhaps, but it is a repeated reminder that, as our newest colleague put it, we do not sit on opposite sides of an aisle. We do not caucus in separate rooms. We do not serve one party or one interest. We serve one nation. Hitting on the themes that you've talked about throughout the hour, but the reality is that the appointments to the Supreme Court are very partisan these days, uh, and the atmosphere we saw around the last two appointments, especially the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, brings a lot of partisan attention to the court. So you hear all of the justices talking about how they approach it in a nonpartisan way, but how, how really can a 5-4 court, one way or the other, really not be partisan? Because the vote and the basis for the vote, if it's 5-4 or not, is not about partisan or political ends. It's about the jurisprudence. So I think there's a huge distinction there. You know, the results, this is why I mentioned, you know, Justice Thomas's Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, another example, right, would be in the Commerce Clause area, where, you know, if you take it on a partisan level, and I remember this very well, and I, you know, I, it was particularly near and dear as one of his uh, law clerks, the there, I don't know if you remember the partial birth abortion case. Congress tried to pass restrictions, uh, and the authority for that was the Commerce Clause, and Justice Thomas went out of his way to say, I don't think the Commerce Clause authority extends that far. And it met with a lot of anger, and frankly, I think some surprise uh, on what I'll call the partisan right. So the answer to your question is just, it's, it's not about partisanship. When you look under the hood at the jurisprudence, and I think it's hard, you know, in top-line reporting to do that sometimes, you see that people are voting on principle, so sometimes the outcome is one way or the other. This is calling balls and strikes. This is what differentiates the court from the political branches, and I will say I agree very much with the point that Chief Justice Roberts makes, and it goes back to, you showed a clip of Chief Justice Warren reflecting on his tenure. There's another one where he reflects on a different part of his tenure, which is the Korematsu case, which was the Japanese internment case. And the historical account is Chief Justice Warren had tears in his eyes looking back on that case and saying, that was one part of my tenure I very much regret, that I voted to uphold 
that internment and that treatment. And I think that that's what the Chief Justice means, which is the court errs when it bends to political will. When you go back in history and you look at the political will at the time and the sentiment in the country, that was the sentiment in the country. I think Chief Justice Warren would be the first to agree it was the wrong result. And if the court had done you know, the court's work, and I think he reflects on it, as the Chief Justice Roberts describes, maybe we wouldn't have had that result. And that's the last thought as this court embarks on a term with some very big <laughs> and likely very controversial cases. Thanks very much for spending an hour with it's us. A pleasure. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.